Turn around and grab your Bibles if you have them, and I hope you do. Um, and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we're going to finish out this chapter today. <clears throat> um, since we are finishing this chapter and we're finishing a, a total discourse, I want to do like I did with the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to go back to the beginning of the chapter and, and during this time just read through the whole chapter uh, from start to finish. And we're going to hear this discourse as the disciples would have heard it when Jesus uh, gave it to them. And I think that's very important for us to remember um, when we break up pieces of Scripture and we take little bitty chunks at a time. If we just do that, we're going to miss a whole lot. We need to learn how to keep stuff um, the way it was when it was written and when it was first spoken. So I'm going to read the whole chapter. And, uh, and I hope that uh, you'll all be blessed just from the reading of Scripture. Um, so Matthew chapter 10 beginning in verse 1. And He called to Him His twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The name of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word. This is how the disciples would have heard this discourse when Jesus first delivered it to him. And now I want to go back and read verses 41 and 40 or 40 through 42 um, for today's study. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. You guys can have a seat. Several years ago, whenever we were uh, embarking on the idea of planting a church, talking a lot about leadership, and, 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 and often still today if you travel in, in leadership circles and people who are looking to equip leaders and raise up leaders, it became popular to ask a question. And the question, uh, which was originally coined by a man named Robert Schuller, if you've ever heard of the Crystal Cathedral, that's the, the man who led that church for many, many years. Um, um, I believe he's outside of, of Christian orthodoxy, even though he wouldn't confess that. Um, but this question 
was, was kind of the, um, the foundation of his ministry. He led a very self-esteem focused, possibility driven ministry, um, encouraging people to look inside yourself um, and, and dig out certain things and, and dig out your self-esteem and that if people could just grow in their self-esteem, then the church would be what it was supposed to be and, and all that nonsense that it's completely antithetical what Scripture teaches. But this question he coined, and it used to be really popular and it kind of made its way over into the church growth uh, movement. And the question was this, what would you attempt if you knew that you could not fail? In other words, if you could do anything on the planet and you knew that you wouldn't fail, you would succeed, it was impossible for you to fail, what would you do tomorrow, Monday? What would you do? You knew you couldn't fail. That was a question that was often tossed about. And the idea was to get leaders thinking about what God had called them to do. Now, of course, that question has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. If we learned anything last week, it was that it doesn't matter what you would do. Actually, you should lay aside what you would do and just do what God commands you to do. Take up your cross. Die to yourself and follow Christ. But if we could transfer this concept over into Christianity and ask this question, if I could ask you, and I want you to seriously think about it, what would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail? Now, as good Christians, Bible-believing Christians, our answer should be, well, I would do whatever brings the most glory to God. That should be our answer. Now, that may not have been what you immediately thought of, and we'll come back to what you immediately thought of in a minute. Um, But it should be to bring glory to God. First question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If I go and ask Case right now, why did God make you and all things? He would say, for His own glory. That's why we were created. That's why we exist. If I were to ask you, what does God want more than anything in the universe? Your answer should be, He wants His glory to be exalted, to be, to be made manifest, to be praised and worshipped. That's what He wants. In every situation, in every time period, in every place in the world, the answer is always, God wants His glory. And that should be your answer to the, to the question... If you could do anything, what would it be? You should say, oh, I would do whatever brings the most glory to God. Now, I could also go back and ask Case, how do we glorify God? And he would say, by loving Him and by doing what He commands. And that's how we do it. We love God, or we we give glory to God by loving Him and doing what He commands. Now, a lot of people think the answer to that question would be by loving Him and doing things that we think He might like because our hearts are really sincere. That's not the answer. The answer is you love Him and you do what He commands. It doesn't matter what you think might be sincere. It matters what He commands. So the answer is glorify Him by loving Him and by doing what He commands. So every Christian's answer, when I say, what would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail, you should say, well, I would seek to give God the most glory and the most honor by loving Him and by doing what He has commanded me to do. So then we come to another question. What has God commanded us to do? Now this kind of changes. When you go to work, it's going to be different than than when you go home or when we come to gather and worship, in corporate worship, it's different. But there's one thing that's always the same across the board for Christians. When we say, what has God commanded us to do? 
One thing that He's commanded us is to go and make disciples of all of the nations. To evangelize, to share the gospel, to proclaim the good news, to spread the kingdom of God. That's always an appropriate answer to what has God commanded us to do. So, assuming that you would do that, if you knew you could not fail, I'm here today to encourage you in this. You cannot fail if you will do that. If you will go and make disciples, you cannot fail. It is simply impossible to fail. Now, if your first answer to the question, what would you attempt if you knew you couldn't fail, if I could prove that to you, that you wouldn't fail, would you have done it? And I would hope your answer would be, well, of course. Well, so now my hope is to prove to you that you can't fail in this. When it comes to making disciples and evangelizing the lost, you cannot fail. And I'm going to prove to you that you can't fail. So then you have no excuse except to embark on the thing that every Christian should attempt to do because they know they can't fail. That's the idea. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I will clarify or qualify that statement by saying the only failure would be disobedience. And to live in consistent disobedience would be to prove that you're, you don't know Christ to begin with, and so none of this applies. Um, but you can't fail. So let's look at these verses, verses 40 through 42. Christ has, is ending the disciples' discourse, and He's ending with encouragement, because if we're honest, we've spent a long time studying a lot of verses that would make it seem like there's really no hope that we're ultimately just going to be going out and kind of firing off gospel blanks that have no power just to say that we did it and people are going to reject us and they're going to persecute us and they're going to kill us and then we go to heaven. And that's not how this ends. It ends with encouragement to remind us that God will save His people. There will be fruit from this work, this labor. It, it, it cannot fail because God cannot fail. And this is one of the, the beauties of unconditional election is that God has His people and they will come to Him. We just go and share the gospel with Him. That's how He has ordained that His people come to faith. And so, He will save His people. So let's not be altogether pessimistic as we read verses 14 through 39 and just think, well, my job is just to go out and you know, get my head cut off or get put into prison and then I've done my duty. And a lot of people preach nowadays, and I think their hearts may be good, they go out on the corner and they scream and they preach and they shout, little to no fruit because let's be honest, people are driving, they're not paying attention, but in their minds they're thinking, well I've done my duty, I preached, and that's all I can do with it because God's got to take it from there. Well that's true, but you do have to make some sort of attempt to get people to hear it, to engage people, and so I don't want us to think that our job is just to get the gospel out. And walk away. Say, well, I did it. It's the Holy Spirit's job. No, we, we should plead and, and compel people and, 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 and the such. So this is what he's doing. He's, he's closing with encouragement because there's been a lot of kind of dreary talk in the last several paragraphs that we've studied. Also, I think it might be interesting to note a little bit of a structure here. Um, in verses thirteen and, or 11 through 13, he talked about the reality of acceptance. That there will be some people who embrace and accept you. But then he goes immediately in verse 14 to the reality of rejection. There will be people who don't reject you. Shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. 
Then he goes into the punishment for rejection. It's going to be bad. For the people who reject these disciples and the gospel, it will be worse on judgment day than the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he, he goes back into verses 16 through 39 to the reality of rejection and persecution. And they're going to drag you before courts and all this stuff's going to happen to you. And then here he ends in verses 40 through 42 again with the reality of acceptance. So he started with acceptance and he ended with acceptance. And in the middle there's this truth of, that, of rejection and, and all. But he's, he's ending with the reality of acceptance. So look at verse 40. And if you're taking notes and you want to give this a heading, um, I'm not good at headings or, or points or things like this, but um, you could title this verse the Trinitarian truth of accepting a disciple. Verse 40, he says, Whoever receives you. Let's stop right there. This is Jesus speaking to His disciples. So He tells them, Whoever receives you guys, 12 men, he's listed their names, 12 men, whoever receives you, of course, we, we are disciples down through the ages, so we follow Christ and, and we are also learners of Christ, and so we kind of fit in this category of disciple. But just picture this, these 12 men standing before Jesus, they've just heard these several paragraphs, minutes of just, you know, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be killed, you know, I'm, I'm bringing a sword, not peace. And then he comes and he says, in a way, but whoever receives you, whoever does receive you. And the word receive here is not just um, shaking hands. It's not just acquaintance. This is deliberate, ready reception of a person, embracing a person, taking them in. Um, um, it carries this idea of honest acceptance of, of your doctrine and your beliefs. You are... Um, Showing that you are um, in a relationship with this person, embracing their ideals. It's more than just acquaintance, it's, it's closeness. So to bring someone in, you can almost imagine um, a son who's been gone on a long trip and he comes home and his mom opens the door and she grabs him and takes him in the house. He's been received and there's hospitality and there's love. It's not just, you know, I'm not kicking you off my porch, I'll let you get your stuff out. This is taking them in, embracing so Jesus says to these disciples, whoever does that, whoever embraces you in that manner, receives you, receives me. So what he just said is to receive the disciple with open arms and embrace the disciple and, and, and take them in and, and accept their teaching and their doctrine and identify yourselves with this person is the same as to do that with Jesus Himself. Now that is huge. That's a really, really big deal because he didn't say, if someone receives you, well, I'll receive him. No, he said, if someone receives you, they're receiving me. Like, I come right along with you. We're so intimately equated with one another and, and acquainted with one another that they receive you, they receive me. There's this, there's this deep interwoven union between Christ and the disciple that to receive a disciple, to embrace them and take them in, is to actually receive Christ Himself. What if we actually began to realize and understand just that? That if somebody accepts us and our message and they embrace us and take us in, they're actually receiving Christ Himself. He has so unified Himself with us that to receive 
us is to receive Him. In the New Testament, especially in Paul, he uses the phrase in Christ a lot. Talking about the position of the believer in Christ. And I just picture you know, a, 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 a Christian being taken and, and put into the cleft of a rock and, and sheltered from the elements. We're, we're inside Christ and we're united and, and bonded with Him. And this is kind of the same idea. He takes it personally the way people either receive or reject His disciples personally. But then it gets even better as He continues to speak. Whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me, that is by way of receiving a disciple. So you embrace a disciple, you receive a disciple, you actually get Jesus. And whoever gets Jesus by receiving a disciple, he says, receives him who sent me. Now who sent Jesus? We know this. God the Father. So to receive a disciple of Jesus Christ is to receive Christ Himself because it's, they're so intimately united and, and acquainted with one another. And it's actually, when you do that, you're actually embracing and welcoming God the Father. Now, a proper understanding of the Trinity, is it, this would be clear. We know that Jesus and, and the Father are, are one in essence. But here he, he states it a little differently just to make this clear. In verse John 2.23, we know whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So there's, there's always this unity. You can't break them apart and have one without the other. But here he, he's just made this incredible claim. And this is, if, if we could get our minds wrapped around this, this should blow us away. Normal people that God has saved, redeemed from hell and sin, and then said, now when you go, if somebody receives you, they're actually receiving me. And if they receive me, the Son, they're also receiving the Father. So to accept and embrace a disciple in this way is ultimately to accept and receive God the Father. Maker of all things, of heaven and earth. Sovereign ruler over every square inch of the universe and every microscopic molecule that there is. He is Sovereign and ruling over. He's the judge of the universe. High and lifted up. Seated in the heavens. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. He's self-sufficient. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's, he's all these things. That God is united to each and every one of you. If you are a disciple of Jesus, He is united to you in such a way that if someone embraces you and takes you in and acquaint, or makes you an acquaintance familiarizes themselves with you and says, you know what, I accept this person, they're teaching their doctrine, I'm with them, they're getting God the Father. That God, united to His disciples, interwoven, intimately connected, personally involved, He takes it personal how people reject or accept you and I and these disciples. Now in this time period... There would be different men in this type of societal structure, different men who would be ambassadors or spokesmen or heralds for the king. And ultimately, they were representatives. And they would go, they may leave the, the throne or the palace or the whatever it might be, and they would go to these little smaller villages and they represented the king. And so whenever they would speak or, or teach or say anything, it was with the authority of the king. And so to receive them was to receive the one who sent them. To, to hear what they had to say was like you were hearing the king himself. 
to listen to their message and, and agree with it was to agree with the king himself. Or in the negative, to reject them would, would be the exact same thing as if you rejected the king himself to his face. Because you're rejecting the one who sent them. It's very similar to the story in, um, in the Old Testament where the people, the Israelites, want a king like all the other nations. And Samuel, he's bummed out because they're rejecting him and they want a real king. And God says, no, 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 don't worry. They're not, it's not you they're rejecting. They're rejecting me as king. He just releases the weight off of Samuel. It's not you. It's, it's me. Now, don't let this escape you. And if, if you have to just read this over and over, meditate on this this week, this is big. When you go out as a disciple of Christ, doing the work of His kingdom, on mission for His kingdom, you're carrying the very name of Christ, and the acceptance or rejection of you is actually rejection or acceptance of God the Almighty. He, he takes that weight off of you and says, it's not you, it's me. They're just rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. He is that associated with every one of His children, with every one of His people, because His Holy Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son has indwelt you, and you carry that with you. And this is actually the fullest meaning of the, 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 the second commandment, or the, not the second commandment, was that third commandment? You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's what it means. It doesn't just mean saying the name of God. It's, it's you're carrying the name of God. It's like you're wearing a jersey with Yahweh on the back or Christ. You're carrying His name and He says, don't you take that name, don't you wear that jersey in vain, in a meaningless manner. Same idea. When we go out, we are wearing that Yahweh jersey, that Christ jersey, and He says, this one's mine. And when you accept Him, you accept me. And if you reject Him, you reject me. So what we get from this verse first, again, is just the reality of acceptance. He says, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives the Father. He wouldn't say this if there weren't those out there who were going to accept, who were going to receive. They are out there. And to receive a disciple is ultimately to receive God the Father. God the Father and God the Son are both united and joined to each and every disciple in such a way that however you respond to a disciple is how you respond to the triune God Himself. Now that fact and that truth spills down into these other two verses. But remember that. This is a, a unity picture. To verse 41, we have additional promises that are given to support this same truth. In verse 41, He says, The one who receives a prophet. Now remember, when we think about prophet... A lot of times we immediately think of somebody who predicts the future. But in the Old Testament and throughout biblical times, a prophet, their main job wasn't predicting the future. Sometimes God would give them a word concerning the future. But a prophet was one who spoke the word of God to the people, who represented God to the people and would call them back to the law of God and call them to repentance. And so whoever or the one who receives a prophet... This man of God speaking on behalf of God to the people. And notice this. This is very important. Because he is a prophet. So we have motive there. He doesn't say whoever accepts a prophet because he's nice and he accepts everyone. Or whoever accepts a prophet because it's his cousin and he's got to be nice. Or whoever accepts a prophet because hey he lives in the south and everybody's nice in the south. To your face. No, he says 
Whoever accepts a prophet because he is a prophet. He's motivated by the sole purpose that this is a prophet. Oh, you're a prophet? Well, in that case, I will receive you. He's motivated by your position with God because this person obviously loves God and wants to honor God as well. I love God and I want to honor God and I hear that you're a prophet. You want to honor God. You speak for God and therefore, because of my relationship with God and your relationship with God, I will receive you. That's my motivation. So whoever does that receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Now this is another way of just saying to accept and embrace one who speaks on behalf of God simply because he speaks on behalf of God is to secure for yourself the reward as if you were the one speaking for God. This is another picture of this special union between the man doing the labor and the one for whom he is working. A great picture of this is in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 17 um, concerning the prophet Elijah. And I'll just read you this. It won't be up here. You can listen. So he, this is Elijah, rose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in, prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. There's a prophet. She took him in because he was a prophet. She did what he said because he spoke the word of the Lord. And she was taken care of because to take care of God's man, or because she took care of God's man, God took care of her. So there's a prophet, one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And then he goes on, and the one who receives a righteous person. Righteous person is just another way of saying a person who is living according to God's standard or God's, God's law, God's word. That We could call this a Christian person. Now we know inwardly, in reality, we're not righteous. We're declared righteous on behalf of the work of Christ alone. But when it talks about a righteous person, this is a person who has been redeemed and then is now living a life pleasing to God. In our day, we would say a Christian. So whoever receives a righteous person or a Christian, again, this is important, because he is a righteous person, because he is a Christian, not because you're nice, not because he's your cousin, not because you live in the South and everybody's hospitable in the South, because he is a Christian, my reason for receiving you Brother, is because you are a Christian. In other words, you're living a life that is pleasing to the Lord and you seek to honor the Lord in the way you live and I too love the Lord and I love God as well and I want to live a life pleasing and honoring to Him and therefore we are brothers and I accept you. 
The person who does that will receive a righteous person's reward. They will be rewarded in such a way as if they were a righteous person as well. Now, the idea here is that if you receive a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, you're more than likely a righteous person as well. You're, you're both cut from the same mold. You're, you're Christian people, and so you are rewarded accordingly. Again, from this verse, no matter the title... God always honors those who honor His people. Whether you're a prophet or whether you're a righteous Christian person, you're God's man, God will take care of those who take care of you. He is uniquely involved and acquainted and and united with those whom are His. Who carry His name. And then the last verse, verse 42, kind of draws this to a conclusion. And this is the ultimate promise concerning those who show proper acceptance to Christ's messengers. He says, and whoever gives one of these little ones. Now this is important. When he says these, the way this is written is literally, you can almost picture Jesus motioning. These. He's talking about the ones that are in His presence in that moment. So it's like He's speaking almost third person about His disciples, but He's speaking to them or over them as well. So whoever gives one of these little ones, little ones, another way of saying a disciple, we're we're lower, lesser, lesser than Christ, um, considered lowly in the eyes of the world, the little ones. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, that is... The smallest little help. The smallest little piece of support that you could give. Show the smallest concern for their well-being. Whoever receives these little ones in seemingly the most mundane way is what he's talking about. Now this kind of bleeds over into this idea of supporting gospel ministry, whether it be in the local church or whether it be in foreign missions. The least little support is important. Um... Paul Washer tells, uh, he talks about missions like this. He says to um, everybody is either um, a missionary or a supporter of a missionary. You got this picture of a, uh, somebody going down into a well and you're either the one on the rope going down into the well or you're the one at the top holding on to the rope letting them go. But either way, both of you have scars on your hands. So where are your scars? That's how he asked it. Where are your scars? Where's the proof that you're actually in the support of of gospel ministry? So he's talking about his disciples, this smallest little bit of support and help for these little ones. And again, we have motive. Because he is a disciple. Not because you're nice. Not because he's your cousin. Not because you live in the South. Not because he's got something you want, but... Because He is a disciple, you're motivated. Your your reception of this person is motivated by the fact that He is a learner, a pupil, a follower of Jesus Christ. Because, of course, you too are a learner, a pupil, a follower of Jesus. So whoever does this, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because He is a disciple, truly I say to you, He will by no means lose His Reward. Just like with the prophets, just like with the righteous person, the reward is substantial, not because of how much you do, the quantity, but the quality and the and the, the motivation. 
The reward is substantial when you embrace and accept and support and care for a disciple of Jesus Christ because they are a disciple, because of their association with Christ. And when he says, truly I say to you, and and by no means, this is kind of putting emphasis on what he's saying. Truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Be encouraged. Whoever receives, whoever helps in the least little way, one of these little disciples, he will be taken care of. Now takeaways from this verse. Again, the smallest act of kindness or care for a disciple of Jesus Christ deserves a reward. Why? Well, we go back to verse 40, which remember it pours into all these verses. Verse 40 is because of the ultimate unity between God the Father and God the Son and the disciple. God takes it personally when you support and encourage and, and help His people. A parallel passage, and I want you to turn here in Matthew chapter 25. Turn there if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, they're back there. And if you need a Bible, let me know. We'll buy you one. Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 31. Many of you have heard this. But this is a parallel passage that's often misused, and I'm going to show how that works. Beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep From the goats. There's that picture of division that we've been talking about. And he will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Picture this. Sheep on right hand, goats on the left hand. Then the king will say to those on his right hand. So he's facing those on his right hand. Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. Notice that parallel to the the cold water. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. All these these least little things that you could do for someone. Then the righteous, again, we're looking to the people on the right. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these. And we stop right there. Least of these. Right? We've got to help the least of these. The poor, the homeless, the helpless, people who need it. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The king doesn't stop. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these... My brothers, you did it to me. Hebrews 2 says if you're a Christian, you are a brother of Christ. Again, we've got these parallels of the thirst and the the drink, the least little bit of support and help, the least of these, compare that to these little ones, these lowly, lesser ones, my brothers, Christians, these on my right hand, these sheep, the goats are over there, I haven't got to them yet, I'm talking about these This passage is talking about caring for Christian brothers and sisters. Now people take this verse and they say, you know, this is across the board. Anytime you do anything to anyone in a helpful manner that's lowly and poor, you're doing it to Jesus. And so you just got to do everything you can. And usually 
forwards a social type of gospel that everything you can do to help other people, you're doing it to Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when you take care of my disciples, these sheep, my brothers, you've done it to me. We are to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. So he's talking about Christians and disciples and supporting those who are disciples because they are disciples. And again, the reward by no means, or he will by no means lose his reward. We go back to verse 40, this intimate connection between God and his people and the Son and his people. To do it to them is the same as to do it to Christ. To receive them is to receive Christ. And to receive Christ is to receive God the Father. This unity between the disciple and the Godhead is simply astounding. This should blow us away that when we go out, we carry that jersey. Triune Godhead. That's the authority which we carry with us. Now I want to close with some points to summarize this discourse. When I say close, I mean we're a little over halfway through. We're more than that. Number one, go back to the beginning. As a Christian, if you're a Christian, this stuff applies to you. If you're not a believer, none of this applies. Forget it all. But if you're a Christian, number one, you have been called by Christ Himself. These disciples, we have their names. They were called by name. In the same way, you have been called by Christ. In theology, we call this the effectual call of the gospel. You have been effectually called from death to life. Years ago, there was a young man who was dead in trespasses and sins. He was rebellious against God. He was completely bent in on himself. He thought the universe revolved around himself. The venom of asps was under his tongue. He had turned away. He was not seeking God. And he was only 10 years old. And he was that bad, that wicked. 10 years old. 3,708 days. Over 320 million seconds spent in rebellion against God. A hater of God. An enemy of God. At 10 years old. And even worse than that, he actually thought that because he had prayed some little snot-nosed prayer one time, that him and God were cool. He prayed a prayer and said, God's got to be cool with that. And there came a time when God said, enough is enough. And he called me to life. I was dead in my sin and He made me alive. And He said, you're going to work for me now. And if you're a Christian, you, the details may be different, but you've got a story like that. You have been called from death to life. The Bible says, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Not because you're good. Not because you're good looking. Not because you're smart. Not because you're more usable than anybody else. But because of God's free grace. You have been called to life. Just like these men, you've been called. Secondly, you have been empowered by Christ. Just like these men. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. 
Acts 1.8, Jesus tells His disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. Romans 8.11 says that that power, that Holy Spirit power, is the same power that raised Jesus up from the dead after He had been in a cold cave for three days. Raised Him to the dead. That power indwells you if you are a Christian. Paul, in praying for the Ephesians, calls it the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. Immeasurable. You can't measure this power that you have been given in the Holy Spirit. You've been empowered by Christ. Thirdly, you've been equipped by Christ. Again, these men were given authority. We have His words which carry His authority. And verse 20 says... It's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. We have His words. We carry His authority. We've been equipped with this type of this authority. Romans 1.16 Paul says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God and salvation. For all who believe. It's not a power. It's not a little bit of power or some of the power or kind of getting the power started. It is the power. The very power of God that brings people from death to life is the gospel. And we all have that. If you're a Christian, you have that. If you join this church, you've had to write that down on the back of a piece of paper. You have the gospel. We've been equipped. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're wielding this weapon. We're equipped and we're ready for battle. Fourth, you've been instructed by Christ. These men received instructions. Go here, don't go here. Take this, don't take this. Here's what you do when they accept you. Here's what you do when they reject you. We've been instructed. It's pretty clear we've been given the Great Commission. Go tell everybody you can about Jesus. Make disciples, not converts. Disciples. Once they're converted, that's, that's when the work, even though it's already began, it continues to go. You, there's more work to be done. Make disciples. We know what to do. We don't have to wonder. I wonder if God wants me to make disciples. I wonder if God wants me to evangelize. The answer is always yes, because it's clearly commanded in Scripture. So you've been instructed. And the instructions could fit on a sticky note. Here's your instructions. Go and make disciples. You've been instructed by Christ. Number five, you've been warned by Christ. Just like these men, 16 through 39 all these verses, just warning. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be prepared. Be ready. This is what's going to happen. All this stuff comes down to us. We've been warned. Hey, some people will accept. And some people will reject. And some people will get angry and they'll hate you. And some people will persecute you and kill you. There, you've got it. There are no more surprises. When you go out, you should never be surprised as to how a person responds to the gospel because you've got it all right here. You've been warned. It's, it's laid out as clear as it could be. No surprises. Then number six, you've been comforted by Christ. Just like these men, we studied 26 through 33, God has a purpose in this. He has chosen you before the foundation of the world for this purpose. His purpose cannot be thwarted. He's sovereign over the spiritual and the physical. He's, he's sovereign over the physical aspect of this ministry. He's also sovereign over the spiritual aspect and the souls and the working in the souls. 
He providentially works in every conversation and word and situation and appointment that you have. And the best news is He's already satisfied. You're not doing this to get God to love you any more than He already does because He can't love you any more than He already does. He loves you just like He loves His own Son, Jesus. He's already satisfied with the work of Christ on your behalf. And so you're not earning anything. You're just doing it out of the overflow of the joy of your heart. And then in this passage, we see that the role of a disciple as we go out is so Christ-centered. I've said this every week. Being a disciple is about Jesus It's not about a structure. It's not about a form. It's not about do this, 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 and this, and then you're discipled. It's a lifelong process focused and centered around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it is so Christ-centered. Your life is so intimately um, woven into the fabric of who Christ is that if somebody accepts you and receives you in the gospel, they're receiving Jesus Himself. And when they receive Christ, Jesus Christ, they're receiving God the Father. And that's because we go in His name. We're going representing Him. We're on a mission as disciples. And when we go out on that mission, we are shrouded in Christ alone. And we carry that name and that title as we go. And so we go as ambassadors in His stead, on His mission in His work, sharing His gospel, His message, His story. So you've received His call. We work with supernatural power. We wield supernatural weapons. We're carrying out His work. And as we've seen, Christ is sovereign over all of this. Christ is sovereign over the division of the sheep and the goats and the mother and the daughter and the daughter-in-law and the mother-in-law and the father and the son and the brother and the brother. He's sovereign over all this, over salvation and damnation, over softening and hardening. He's in control. Therefore, He cannot fail. He can't lose. You get that? He can't fail. Nothing's going to come against Him and slow Him down or hold Him back. And we go carrying that name. And the way that we are received is the same way He's received. And if He can't fail, we can't fail. Unless we just refuse to do it. So there, I've proven to you the one thing that a Christian should be involved in on a regular basis that you should be attempting to do, you can't fail. And I think we would all agree if it were something outside of the Christian faith that we knew we couldn't fail, we'd be jumping on it. We'd be all over it. Some, some career, some thing we wanted to own, we could go for it and never fail. Some aspiration we had, you'll never fail. We'd be jumping all over that. And here I've just proven, as an evangelist, making disciples, you can't fail. Unless you just refuse to do it. To refuse to do it is to prove that you don't know Christ to begin with. And if that's you, then I would just say, trust in Christ today. Start today. Take on this cloak of Christ. Trust in His life and His death in your place. Don't reject it. Don't go to hell because you, you, you think you're saved or you, you prayed a prayer at one time or, or you're hoping mom and dad can get you in. It, it doesn't work like that. We can't ride on the coattails of anyone else. We must trust in Christ and in Christ alone. And when we are accepted or rejected, He, he takes it personally. He's with us. That's the end of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all of the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and what? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm always there. Let's pray. Father,